Good morning. Well, for those of you who don't know, my name is Shaner Newsom. I am currently working as the interim RUF campus minister here at the University of Texas at Arlington, and so it's my privilege to be here with you guys this morning. Our passage this morning is from Jeremiah chapter uh, 29, verses 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There was, after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Saphan, and Gemariah. I should have looked these uh, names over a couple of times. The son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find you. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which, from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Grass withers in the flower phase, but the word of God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your scriptures. Uh, We thank you that uh, you have promised to send them out and that when they go out, they do not return to you void, but they accomplish all that you intend for them. So I pray that even as your word was read this morning, uh, that your purposes are being accomplished among us this morning. I pray that your spirit will cause my words uh, to be wherever be your words wherever they're true and faithful to your word. And I pray that you would cause my words to follow the ground wherever they miss the mark. Lord, we need this. We need your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll give you a warning. This is a poetry-heavy sermon. If you're not into poetry... I can't help you. (laughs) 
um, I will pray for you. Um, uh, one of the reasons I, 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 I joke, but one of the reasons, uh, for those of you who aren't into poetry, I would, I would just maybe uh, a gentle admonishment. Learn to, um, learn to read poetry. Uh, poets have a way of uh, inviting us into something of our humanity in a very disti- distinct and unique way. Um, there's a category of, of poet, poetry called uh, nocturne po- poems. And this is from a glossary on poetry about that particular category. One could make a good international anthology of modern poetic nocturne, which is frequently a threshold poem that puts us in the presence of nothingness or God. It returns us to origins. It stirs poets towards song. Nocturnes are often poems of sleeplessness, the cry of the solitary, and bereft and sold in poetic form. And one particular um, point in my life uh, that's, you know, I'll, I'll put it under the banner of a dark night of the soul, um, a, a, an old uh, book about suffering. A friend of mine gave me a, a poem titled Nocturne by a woman named Jennifer K. Sweeney. I want to read that to you this morning. There is a blue city in mind, constructed slantways along a rippling canal, clean and unpeopled but for a musician who plays a harp without strings. The city has has one chair where he sits by the broad strokes of water. A lone street light tends its blue arc of light a Persian door, a Zeppelin sky. The world filters through his empty frame as he plucks the air. Maybe you hear a song or maybe you don't. That is the choice we are always making. That's what I want us to consider today is uh, that choice that the poem is getting at, that poem uh, of, of whether we can hear a song that's being plucked on a harp without strings. A broken harp. A harp that's um, symbolic of uh, uh, our own brokenness or a world of brokenness, a world of sin and destruction. That choice we're making to search for hope in the midst of exile. That's what this passage is about. It's about exile. It's about the Israelites in uh, captivity in a foreign land. The scriptures in some ways, in many ways, are a story of exile. Here we look at the passage uh, at a time in Israel's history uh, when Babylon, sometime around 598 or between 598 and 587, B.C., they were conquering, and they had conquered the southern part of of the kingdom of Judah. They had sacked Jerusalem, carried its leaders off into exile, into Babylon. This is how they would settle a place. They would carry off important people back to Babylon and sort of force them to integrate into life in Babylon as a way of, of, of fulfilling their conquest, their desires for conquest. And if you can imagine, I don't know, whatever you've seen or whatever you can imagine in terms of 
what military battle was like in the ancient Near East, you can certainly imagine that this was brutal. Heavy and blunt instruments. Destruction. Death. Loss of life. Um, loss of loved ones. Loss of place. This was a removal, not just from place and all that they knew, but it was removal of their very identity because to lose Jerusalem is to lose God in some sense to them. It's to lose his blessing. Psalm 122 is a psalm that is written about the praise of God's people for Jerusalem. A blessing on Jerusalem, a, a prayer for uh, peace and security and a, a declaration of their love for their city. And here we have Israel carted off to Babylon into exile. Another psalm touches on this uh, very exile and what it felt like to the Israelites. This is Psalm 137. It may be the most difficult psalm in the Psalter. Maybe. There's other ones that are pretty difficult too. One, psalm 88 is pretty difficult. Um, but uh, commentators struggle to know what to do with this. And I would say for good reason. Here, here are the words of Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered our home. On the willows there were hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Talk about salt in the wind. Sing us one of your worship songs here in Babylon. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, listen to this, and dashes them against the rocks. One commentator in talking about this psalm says this, I think it's important to go ahead and say this, so this is not what our, past, our sermon is about. He says this passage implies that it is an act of prof profound faith to entrust even your, your hatred, your most precious hatreds to God, knowing that they will be taken seriously. Perhaps it's when we do this that we can sing Yahweh's song on foreign soil. The psalm is not saying that your precious hatreds are okay. It is saying that lying to them, lying to God about them, is not. 
either. Acting as if they don't exist. This passage then is uh, given to Israel in that place. That place of loss and destruction and their precious hatreds. Their desire for justice and vengeance. So I want us to think about this in a couple of ways. I want us to think about this corporately in terms of the people of God, which includes us, the church. Um, last time I preached here, I, I mentioned something of uh, the, the, the de-churching uh, um, of the American church. I've, uh, the other um, s- uh, scholars talk about it as a post-Christian turn in America. Certainly, we've seen this post-Christian turn uh, happen in Europe. So we see the church uh, being invited into the very, uh, uh, to identify in this very place of exile along with Israel. Maybe you felt this over the course of these last few years. A lot of the agitation that has happened in the United States and in, in the church has been over this sense of things are shifting all around us. We're losing our place. We're losing our standing. And we don't know what to do, to ba- do about it. And maybe a lot of us are nurse- nursing our own little precious hatreds towards the world around us. And so I would like to ask you to consider where that may exist and then how your presence here, I mean here, like at the 410, might be calling you to think differently and maybe calling you to think in the way that this passage is calling Israel to think about their presence in Babylon. I don't know all of your story, but I know you sold a building, a building that looked like a church to be here. And for some of you, this may feel like exile. This may feel like Babylon. This may feel like a deep, deep loss to be sitting in this place rather than that place. And so the question is, what are we to do with that? What do we do? Well, nursing our precious hatreds, we know is off the table. But what else is there? So that's part of what this passage is about. The other is about, um, I think there is, so there's exile for us as Christians, and maybe uh, we're feeling that as a church body. Um, But there's also a sense of exile of self. There's uh, something of ourselves that is, is lost and wandering that's displaced. That the story of humanity starts in the garden in wholeness, and that wholeness in the garden is a wholeness of relationship between us and God, um, with us and each other, and us and ourselves. And one of the ways we know that is because when the curse comes in, one of the things that is fractured or all of those, we see fracture in all three of those areas of relationship. Actually, there's four areas of relationship. It's also a relationship with the created world. And there's fracture in all of those. And so there's also a, a type of exile that we experience internally. Our own sense of ourself, our own sense of our place and our home, our connectedness. And we live sort of internally in, in a kind of exile. One such, again, poet an Irish uh, man named Padraig Otuma, in his book, it's his, uh, called In the Shelter, Finding Welcome in the Here and Now, okay? Finding Welcome in the Here and Now. 
He's describing his own sense of exile, his own life of exile, his own life of journey kind of through exile. And as he's moving uh, into a place of, of dealing with that exile, he talks about what's going on and he, he describes it, that he, he carries with him always two books. One is the Bible and the other is the Lord of the Rings um, and actually, it's, it's interesting, you laugh, uh, the, what's interesting is for him, uh, he says that the Lord of the Rings was actually the thing that was most healing for him in this particular part of his story. And here's why. He, he gives us a little bit of why. I had a copy of the Bible, too, but I was doubting my decision to bring it. I didn't feel like I could read it. I felt like that I could read it if I were someone else. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like maybe the Bible would make sense to you or would be valuable to you if you just weren't you? If you weren't carrying your story, your story of maybe sin. Maybe you're, you're, you have something in your life that just weighs you down. And you feel like that if I could be holier, more righteous, if I could uh, be more perfect, if I could be more, I don't know, maybe it's more beautiful or, or um, more um, accomplished. If I could be healthier, maybe it's your body that is, is broken and you carry with you constantly pain that you just feel like if you could just be healed, then maybe the Bible would touch something of where you are. Displacement is more than a physical displacement. And let me, we, we can, no, physical displacement is nothing to be dismissed. It's real and painful. This is displacement of Israel's very identity. Their identity is wrapped up in Jerusalem. The place where the temple was, the place where God met with his people, and in a sense, in their minds, it's where God was. And so if they couldn't go to Jerusalem, then they couldn't go to God, at least not fully. And it's an exile of self. This is something we all experience. As I've said, it begins in Genesis with the fall, but we see even after the fall that, that Adam and Eve are pushed out of the east gate of the garden, and we're told that when Cain is sent away, he's sent to the land of Nod, which means the land of wandering, and the story of the people of God and the story of, of all of humanity since the, the original fall, since the sin in the garden has been a kind of story of displacement, a story of exile. And here's what I know. I, I, I don't know a lot of things. But I'm pretty confident of this one. Is that displacement, the thing that displacement does is it shrinks our horizons. The world becomes very, very small when we feel and when we are displaced. Hope becomes painfully difficult. And maybe hope feels something like trying to play a song on a stringless harp. 
And when this begins to set in, our focus then shifts to our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and our lack. So I want us to step back and ask ourselves, even as we're perhaps feeling like we're in exile in this very place here, have you also felt the temptation to feel, or have you also felt the reality that your horizon has shrunk? And maybe there was, I don't, I don't know. I've been through a similar experience in a church, so I'm going to throw this out there. But maybe the, the move here was with great joy and expectation and hope, and, and, and maybe that just hasn't come to fruition the way you thought it might or as quickly as you, as you hoped it would. And your horizon has shrunk. And you've wondered if this is all going to fall apart tomorrow. And then maybe you felt this where uh, our attention and our focus and in those moments shifts to our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and what we don't have. Individually, um, it our focus can shift to our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, but it also can shift to our guilt and our shame. I have a sticky note that I've kept with me. Um, it holds a particular important place in my life, which sounds strange to say. Um, but in the process of beginning to pursue healing from that dark night of the soul, uh, I met, I was meeting with my therapist for the first time, and he asked me, what are the things you believe about yourself right now? What are you feeling? Here's what I wrote down. I am less than. I'm alone in the world. And I am degraded. Have you ever felt that way? Do you ever feel like you're less than, alone? And that something's just tainted about you. The truth is, in order to begin to live life with hope in exile is that we must embrace exile. This is who we are. That the people of God are actually deeply defined as a people who live in exile, who live at the same time home and not home, and we live at the same time going home but not yet home. We understand and believe and know and hope and trust that Jesus, by his resurrection, is making this whole world new. That's the plan, right? That's where we're going, that everything around us will be made new. I just want to go ahead and say this, is that the Bible doesn't say that God is making all new things. What it says is that he's making all things new. That means the home and the place that you live in now, this place right here is a part of the story of God's redemption, and yet we live with that nagging realization that it's not yet there. 
And this is described in the scriptures as being strangers and aliens, as exiles in the world that was, is our home, is going to, was our home, in some sense is going to be our home, so it is our home now, but it's not yet. And so we are called um, to follow along with Israel in this situation in Babylon and make a home. To see that we are to find our lives in exile. We are called to adjust our identity to the reality that this place will never quite hold what we're longing for until Jesus comes again to fix it completely. And so Israel is called to, while in Babylon, to build and plant and eat and marry and live in Babylon and to seek the good of Babylon. Now think about this. Think about, I don't know, for some reason CNN shows up here this morning, sticks a microphone in front of my face and asks me what I think the, you know, God thinks about what's going on in Israel and Gaza right now. And I say, he's called for the Palestinians to seek the welfare of Jerusalem and for the Israelites to seek the good of Gaza City. It's startling. To seek the good of those places to seek the welfare of the city, of the person that has taken you into captivity, that has displaced you. That's what God says to Israel. Seek their good. Seek their flourishing. We are called to embrace our story of exile and begin to build out our concept of our life and what faith is and what hope is, what it looks like to, to play hope on a stringless harp here in exile, as a people of exile. As I promised, poetry, I've got another poem for you. <clears throat> this one is titled, Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No true trees are, are the same to the raven, and no two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. 
Padraig, in talking about this poem, explains it for us. So I'm going to read that so we don't just leave here confused about that poem. The truth of this poem is an old truth. There are the places you wish to go. There are the places you desperately wish you never left. There are the places you imagine you should be, and there is this place called here. In the world of Wagner's poem, it's the rooted things, trees and bushes that tell the truth to the person who is lost, the person with legs and fear who wishes to be elsewhere, the person who must stand still, feel their body still on the ground where they are in order to learn the wisdom. This is not easy wisdom. It is frightening wisdom. So stand still, the poet advises. Learn from the things that are already in the place where you wish you were not. Love how he says that. God is calling on Israel to learn from the things that are already in the place that they desperately wish they were not. Then he goes on to say, hello to here. This is the embrace of exile, is to learn to... Um, uh, live and to learn from God and to live with God here, the place you wish you were not. To believe that somehow God is here with you, that you are not lost, that you're not off the map, that God has not forgotten about you, that he has not forsaken you, that God is with you in the very places, even the places you wish you were not. And this can be desperately difficult for many of us. But it can't be more desperately difficult than it was for Israel and Babylon. It just can't be. Maybe you can relate to Israel and Babylon. That would be good. Because then maybe you could hear God calling you to learn from that place. And Jeremiah um, God, through Jeremiah in this letter, doesn't simply say, learn from that place, learn to, to be with God in that place, but he also says, do not believe the false prophets who tell you that everything about what God is doing is to get you out of, out of here to somewhere else, that somehow God is not with you here, and the only way to get back to God is to leave it. He says they're lying. He says they're false prophets and they're liars. Early in our, our marriage, um, Heather and I, one, at one point we just kind of sat back and, I, I don't know, it was just one of those light bulb moments that we, we realized that we had, we had a, our conversation would just cycle back around to the next thing, right? As soon as we get the next thing, then somehow, then the next thing is going to somehow magically make our lives acceptable and pleasing and pleasant. And we, we just sat back and we said, we've got we to gotta stop assuming that the next job, the next pay raise, the next home, the next whatever it is, the next degree is somehow going to open up the doors and we're going ha- to find whatever it is we think we're looking for. To learn to live our lives faithfully and to find hope, to play the harp, the stringless harp, but to play the music of hope where we are in the places we wish we were not. 
God tells Israel, he says, look, this is going to be a long time. He says it's going to be 70 years, which is a, a generation. 70 years, you know, if we step back and think about the grand scheme of things and the scale of humanity, we might think 70 years is not very long. But for everyone who heard, got this letter, it was a lifetime. It was their lives spent in Babylon. So hear the weight of that. But also what we know is in the scriptures when numbers uh, often are used with significance and 70 is a, it's the number 7 times 10. I did that math just now. But 7 and 10 are, are two numbers of, of, of perfection. God is saying, you're going to be here. You're going to be here for a while. You've got to learn to know what it looks like to hope and live by faith in the places that you wish you were not in exile. God also says, though, that he is with them. He says, I have sent you here, and I am with you here. This is not, again, this is not Israel somewhere that they're not supposed to be. This is Israel somewhere where God is with them and has carried them, has taken them. And this is a hard truth. And we can often use this hard truth in a kind of trite way without understanding how painful it is to live life in Babylon. It is. But it's also important for us to realize that ba Babylon is also where God is with us. Exile is terrible. It is not the way we were meant to live. We were meant to live with God in the fullness of his presence and his relationship and with one another and with ourselves and the creation in an ever-expanding, glorious garden. So exile is terrible, but it's not some random, random stupid, hopeless event. It is, not, it is also not the end of the story. Embracing our exile enables the possibility for beginning to extend our horizons once again. That's the key. If we'll embrace the here of the places we wish we were not, if we will embrace that God is with us in our exile as a church, as a corporate people, as, as an individual, then we can begin to extend our horizons and begin to uh, sing songs of hope in the midst of all of it. It's in that embrace that we begin to find wholeness. I don't know if any of you have ever been in counseling, I talk about it a lot, and some of the reasons, I'll just be honest, some of the reasons I talk about it a lot is because I want you guys to know that it's okay. But one of the things that I can tell you about my time in counseling that, <laughs> this is so frustrating, is that most of the energy is me trying to, like, figure it out, because I know if I figure it out, then somehow it's all going to get better. And I, I get into that space and I realize that part of what I am doing is learning to live life here with deep, deep brokenness, like deep brokenness, life-altering brokenness. 
grief, shame. Learning to live where I am. Not, and the thing about it is, is trying to figure it out so I can get somewhere else never gets you anywhere else. Learning to live where you are, what you begin to realize is healing begins to come into that space. And so God says, look, I know you're in Babylon and I know you hate it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn to live there. And as you learn to live there, your horizons begin to expand. Just look at, again, what he says. He says, build, live. All of those words are in the imperative. There is, he is commanding them. You must do this. And all the things that he's commanding them to do are just the ordinary stuff of life. He's saying, learn to live in Babylon. But not simply to live there. He also says, in an imperative, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the shalom. When you think of shalom, think of the garden and all of its wholeness where everything functioned the way it was supposed to. And he says, look, in Babylon, in that place of exile, what you are called to do is to seek the shalom of that place, to seek the welfare of the city, to seek the welfare of Arlington. I don't know much about Arlington. I don't live here. I've never lived here. But maybe there's things that you find very hateable about the city where God has placed you. I don't know. I mean, everywhere I've lived, there were things that I could find that were hateable. And God is saying, seek the good, the wholeness of Arlington. To seek its welfare, to seek to see it flourish. He's calling Israel to seek the welfare of Babylon. Again, this is like a Palestinian being called to ask to seek the welfare of Israel and an, an Israel, a Jewish person, to be, to be being called to seek the, the good, the welfare, the shalom of their neighboring others. We are called to embrace exile, but we're in call to embrace exile and then to move out into love for the place that God has called us to seek its, its well-being, the shalom. Uh, the definition of one commentator, one theologian, uh, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Delight. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. In other words, it's the way things ought to be. Another theologian says, shalom is human beings dwelling at peace in all his or her relationships with God, with self, with fellows, with nature. And as we begin to seek the welfare of the place where God has called us, the city in which he has called us, the stringless heart begins to make music. It begins to call forth the song of hope. It begins to um, bring about uh, the very things that we believe God has come to bring, uh, bring through his son and the redemption of Jesus.
It's often difficult to find hope in exile. But as we begin to embrace it and embrace that God is with us here, that he's called us here and he's called to live out the kingdom here, then the song of hope begins to be heard in the places where God has called us. As we seek the welfare of the city, our goodness is found. Do you see that? He says, your blessing, your wholeness, your shalom is found in theirs. I love that. As difficult as that may be to hear. One theologian says, hope is imagining the future into the present. That's what God is calling Israel to do in Babylon. I'll close with just saying this. I suspect, I feel, feel like I can say this. That's what God is calling you to do right here. To imagine the future into the present to believe that the God who was exiled in his son Jesus, the God who was exiled for your salvation, the God who entered into estrangement and displacement, the God who in Jesus was forsaken at the hands of his enemies for you to find home. As you live that out here, Hope begins to sound from whatever stringless harp you think you're carrying. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, mercy. Thank you that you love us. We thank you that, <laughs> I, I don't want to say, I, I, we thank you that you call us into exile, but I do want to thank you that you're present with us and that exile is not, does not mean we have left your goodness does not mean we are off the map. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church and as individuals to embrace here so that we might know your hope and goodness and we might live it out for the flourishing of our city. It's in Jesus' name I pray.